1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Leah Yu. She is a beauty influencer and founder and CEO of Crave Beauty. Leah has an international social media following of over 1 million people. She creates content that educates her followers on low maintenance and effective skincare, sharing her unconventional acne fighting tips based on her own personal skincare experience. Leah worked for more Pacific, South Korea's largest beauty company before starting her own brand crave beauty whose mission is to challenge the fast paced beauty industry to slow down in the world of korean skincare where 10-step processes are the norm and new products are constantly being introduced leah is focused on keeping it simple and true helping people reset their routines by taking a step back to listen to their skin's true needs and feed it what it craves leah welcome to the show
2: Yay. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been a big fan.
0: We're also a big fan of you, you know,
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so cool too. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me again.
0: Of course. Of course. Yeah. We want to hop into your story. You know, we want to hear more about how you got into everything that you're doing right now. And it's been so grassroots, you know, you started with your YouTube channel and then you, created business from that do you want to hear more about that and what kind of mindset were you thinking at the time what year was this
2: yeah um where should i start i guess i can kind of introduce myself again uh, to your audience Um, my name is leah Yu, as maggie has introduced me i'm a youtube content creator specializing in skincare helping thousands of people achieve healthier skin hopefully yours too Brian and Maggie. (laughs) And I also kind of turned into an entrepreneur by an accident. So on top of my YouTube channel, I now have a skincare brand called Crave Beauty, um, where I live now. I live in New York City, but was born and raised in Korea. So the year that I started YouTube was back in 2011. And I think back then YouTube wasn't a platform for content creators to become a millionaire, to be honest. But it was purely a place for people to share their hobbies, share their obsessions. And maybe this is why like there is a certain nostalgia feeling we get from remembering like the OG creators back in the days compared to now. And back then I found K-beauty really fascinating. And I was so compelled to share my interests and people around the world because that was a time where Big Bang was getting like international recognition and there was girls generation. So K-pop was slowly becoming a thing internationally. And I think naturally the interest towards K-pop has expanded to Korean skincare. Oh, why are their skin so good? Um, So I thought there was an opportunity and a clear white space on YouTube to be um, to be that kind of a YouTuber to review Korean skincare and Korean beauty products. So that's how I got started on YouTube.
0: Oh wow! When, what year was this? Was it 2011? 2011. 2011. Oh wow. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, I remember
1: when like YouTube was just coming out and everyone was saying how like it wasn't a platform for people to get famous, you know, (laughs) and compared to now, you know, obviously a lot of people are trying to get famous from it now, but back then it was just like an outlet for people to like, you know, out videos of what they're interested in what their like passion is and you know it's very obvious that korean you know related stuff like k-pop korean skincare um was your outlet so it's awesome
2: oh yeah i mean i was a i'm a natural introvert too so like these are the this is the stuff that i couldn't really share in real life with my real life friends so i found youtube to be more like a like a secret sacred space to share what i'm really obsessed with
0: that's awesome. Did you, did you tell your friends about the, your, your YouTube channel or did they discover it as soon as you got, as you're getting more famous, you know, they're like, oh my God, I didn't know you were doing this the whole time.
2: <laughs> yeah, they kind of discovered later. I didn't even tell my parents, so they didn't know what I was up to, like in my room, I locked up. So yeah, it, it was kind of a fun time.
0: That's so cool. Because to, to me, it's like, I feel like you got in like before the hype and before the curve, right? and the fact that you've been yeah. you've been so consistent over the last 10 years. I mean, yeah, I can't was,
2: believe it's already been a decade.
0: I, <laughs> I mean, how do you keep yourself so motivated through content creation and staying focused on K-beauty, you know? That's, I'm super curious about that.
2: Yeah, I think with anything consistency is definitely key too. Like I didn't really if I look back how I grew my channel, there wasn't a moment where it completely like tick off all of a sudden. It was a very gradual uh, grind that led to 1.2 million subscribers now. But I think, I know that a lot of the YouTubers back in the days um, eventually burn out, but I didn't really have a burnout moment just yet. (laughs) Can't (laughs) say for sure for the future. But so far, I think the creative process is what excites me and is something that energizes me too. So I think running the company and On top of that, creating YouTube videos for my viewers, that's something that energizes me enough to sustain, um, to kind of go through the hard week when it comes to running the company. So I think I kind of found something that I'm really passionate for that also energizes me.
1: I love that. that. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing to hear you say that you haven't really um, burnt out yet. So I think a lot of content creators, they do get to a point where they're just completely burnt out. But if you do something that you're like completely passionate about, you know, and you continue doing it every day and you know that it's something that you truly do love, then that definitely helps. So yeah. I, I know you mentioned that you kind of fell into entrepreneurship by accident. Right. And (laughs) we didn't mention in your, in your intro that you were working for a more Pacific and you were doing, um, e-commerce strategy and management. So I do want to hear, you know, how did you get this, you know, entrepreneurial spirit? I do want to know more about like your family and, you know, if that had any effect on, you know, your entrepreneurial lifestyle and mindset, or if this kind of like entrepreneurial mindset, you know, came and rooted from Mm -hmm. you being a content creator on YouTube.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That's a that's a good question. Um, There's no Person in my family who runs a business, to be honest, they're all like doctors, professors, oh, wow. academia. So I don't think I got that gene from my parents or from my family. But I think because Korea is rather a very homogenous country where your difference is not really celebrated, meaning that if you have a different dream or if you want to pursue something differently, other than what society tells you what success is, I think that was a little bit too suffocating for me to the point where I. Want wanted to like rebel against the norm. So I think, um, you know, I did go to like a very prestigious school in Korea, getting a corporate job that everyone admires. And I did make my parents proud in a very traditional and conventional way. But I just didn't realize I But I soon realized that it's not a really fulfilling path. I wasn't creating an impact to whoever I'm reaching through my work at a corporate job. So I thought that, you know what, I'm still young. I was still in my 20s back then. So I wanted to do something that I thought was fun, which was creating content and also adding value to someone's life through my content. And I think that kind of entrepreneurial um, uh, kind of seed has sprouted back in 2016 after I quit my corporate job. And that's when I announced and declared that I'm going to do YouTube full-time. And then after doing YouTube full-time for about two years, I think that's when the entrepreneurial seed kind of sprouted because I was interacting and talking to thousands and hundreds of people who are obsessed with beauty, but who's so lost in their skincare journey. So I thought there was something wrong there because if we look at the market now, the beauty market is oversaturated Mm -hmm. and the consumers were living in a constant analysis per analysis like for instance Maggie if you jump for instance Maggie if you go into Sephora what's the first thing that comes to mind
1: oh man i don't even know because there's so many things i, I wouldn't <laughs> even know where to start don't,
0: don't even ask me i don't know where to begin
1: <laughs> but like it's like when i go to sephora i know what i'm looking for but it's there're just so many brands where i'm just like i don't even know if this brand is right for me or if that brand is right for me you know so there's just like an overflow of information of mm-hmm. what type of skincare products is, is like right for you, or you don't even know mm-hmm. if it's right for you. Cause everyone's skincare is so, or everyone's skin is so different. And especially like in the Asian community, right? Yeah. Our our skin is I very to unique. Add
0: to, just like skincare shopping in Korea, I mean, we're, we're Maggie and I were in Korea, which is like, yeah. oh, there's even like three times more <laughs> than Sephora to pick from. So how does that all work? You know, I have no idea.
2: No, absolutely. I think that's like literally what everyone feels like in the day and age where there's so many products and not only the product options, but there's so much information out there telling you to apply this and that. And it kind of sells you almost a FOMO. If you don't apply this, your skin is not going to be functioning. You're not gonna get that glass skin. You're not gonna get that flawless skin. So I think a lot of us like consumers were more confused than ever to build a skincare routine for themselves. They don't know what their skin needs, what their skin type is, So I thought that was kind of uh, interesting because I mean, nowhere in my lifespan was there a plan to launch a skincare company, but I saw a clear problem that everyone was lost Mm -hmm. and I knew I wasn't alone because I felt that way too. Um, and I just thought that, you know what, there, there needs to be a voice in the beauty industry to slow down skincare and actually empower people to tune into their skin's craving over what the Sephora sales staff is saying that you need. So I think that was the whole um, genesis of Crave Beauty. And I think that was 2017. Yeah. Oh,
1: no. Yeah, that's amazing. I I feel like we missed a few steps because I you feel
2: like you make it sound so
0: easy.
1: you make it sound so easy. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we know that you were a content creator on YouTube and you were, I feel like you were trying to inform other people of, you know, different skincare products, but then you decided, okay, maybe I should create my own line of um, you know, create beauty. I want to know like. What was going through your mind at that time? You know, because on
0: top of that, I want to hear more about you as a content creator because it's not easy being a content creator and it's not Mm. easy being a full time content creator. Mm. So, did you have a part time job as you're getting your content up, or at what moment did you (laughs) quit your job and and then focus? Okay, I'm gonna be a full time YouTuber because I make X amount of income.
2: Yeah, it wasn't so much about the financial milestone that I hit that led to me quitting the corporate job or giving up a very financially stable position at a huge conglomerate company. Mm -hmm. I think it was more about now now or never kind of mentality where I was in my late 20s and then my YouTube was something that was relatively small in 2015, 2016 when I was quitting my job. But I thought that If I don't quit now and give this YouTube thing a full shot at my 100% capacity, I would be so regretful (laughs) in my 30s. And I just wanted to kind of give a proper chance to YouTube because it was something in me that was super excited about interacting with people and sharing my obsession through an online community. So that's when I quit my job. And then I didn't have a proper income for the next a year and a half. And I was grinding my ass off because I needed money. So after I quit my job and did YouTube for full time, I noticed that even though you are consistent enough to upload content, it's not going to be like, a magic where youtube as a platform rewards you with so much more subscribers so i think i was a little bit lost initially when i started doing youtube full-time but i think that i mean i am glad like looking back i'm glad that i didn't give up but that was when i was probably at my lowest point because i thought that this was something that my, where my passion was. And if I grind enough, the reward would come, whether that's like subscriber count or finance too. So after doing that for about a year and a half to two years without any income, I was relying on my severance pay and whatever Mm -hmm. savings I had back then, but lucky enough that it kind of started to hit a product market fit for my content. Because I think back then, when I was like grinding, creating content, I was just really, you know, randomly reviewing products without knowing that if this content would add value to anyone. So I was literally doing whatever I feel like, oh, this is what, you know, I like doing, and this is what. And this is the product that I would like to see someone review. So I think the focus was put on me rather than the audience who is watching and consuming the content. Mm -hmm. So at one moment, I started realizing okay, I need to switch something here and I need to think about. I need to rethink about the content creation process. I can't really do anything that I want to do, but it also equally needs to be beneficial to someone who's spending their 10 minutes of their very, very important and limited time of the day to watch my YouTube content. So that's when I started thinking about, okay, what would people who's just starting their skincare journey want? What would people who have a lot of like hormonal acne want? And that kind of led me to doing a lot of scientific research with my research assistants who was kind of part-time and we started dissecting all the medical journals for chemistry, biology, dermatology. We went at it really, really hard and I think that's when my channel kind of Tick off a little bit. Um, And yeah, a lot of people found the content really helpful. And I think let alone there were a lot of people who implemented the skincare tips that I delivered through my content that, you know, completely changed their skin for the better. And I think, A lot of the times, especially in the states where there's so much antibiotics and, you know, Accutane, when it comes to treating your acne, I suggested an alternative method into really looking after your skin from a fundamental health level and I also do believe that beauty is inside out like you are what you eat and you are what you put on so kind of tying back to more of a asian root where everything's holistic everything is connected in your body and I think that really worked for a lot of people who were struggling with acne for like a decade or so they would they would shoot me like their before and after pictures and these are the people who went on accutane who went on antibiotics and who just couldn't see The result that they were looking for, so that was really, that was really really rewarding. I love that. Wow, yeah, that makes a lot more sense now because I was
1: trying to figure out like what was the impetus of you creating crave beauty, right? Because now now it makes more sense that you said that when you were putting out content, it felt more like you were just reviewing products that worked for you. Right. And oftentimes like I get questions on my social media, like what skincare products are you using? And if it works for me, it doesn't mean that it might necessarily work for like someone else, right? Because all of our skins are so different. And just because one product works for one person, it doesn't mean that it'll work for everyone else. So that makes a lot more sense. and so when you were you know starting out with Crave Beauty, I want to know like how did you make sure that you differentiated yourself to other skincare product companies because there's just so many and I feel like throughout the mm-hmm. pandemic there have been so many skincare product companies and wellness brands that have started from the pandemic. Um, yeah. but like what was the process like for like product testing because you have to make sure that you know now that you want to make sure that you're speaking out to your audience, and making sure that your products work for other people, not, not only for you, what was that process like when you were doing the product testing and then how did you like differentiate yourself to other competitors?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question, but fundamentally I think the way, um, I think fundamentally our approach was really different and is still pretty different from a lot of other skincare brands out there because especially in the States, we see so many skincare products that has really high concentrated active ingredient that would deliver and promise a miraculous like overnight fix or whatever results that you're looking for and almost gives you that instant gratification. But I know that you know our skin is a naturally functioning organ and knows how to do its job, so rather rather than taking over its natural functionality, I think it's much more to really support your nat- natural skin's functionality. So our, skins, like our product development ethos is never to go against your skin's natural functionality, but rather work with your skin to deliver the results long-term that you're looking for. So I think that was one of the biggest differentiator. And another thing was that I know when it comes to you know, we're living in a very capitalistic society, right? So if there is an investor, you're pressured to generate profit, you know, maximize maximize the profit value and increase the company's valuation. That's what I see with a lot of other D2C skincare brands out there and beauty brands and consumer brands at large. And I think I was talking to you, Maggie, in our intro call where I felt like the skincare companies were not operating um by prioritizing their stakeholders which is their customers the employee and the environment that they're living in it's more about like how do we satisfy our shareholders how do Mm -hmm. we create a return to our investors so that was a very big kind of like hypocritical thing that i witnessed and i still do see a lot where the consequences that um the customers who is consuming your products are not getting as good of a product that they were looking for, or the product solution is not really solving their customer, the customer's pain point. And another thing is that when it comes to developing a product pipeline for skincare products, um, most of the times, We know that toner, essence, serum, like these are fundamentally a same formula, but broken down into different categories so that you apply more and you eventually buy more products. Um, So I'm sure this is kind of like a surprising. (laughs) Yes. Like I didn't even know that. Like
1: I, I would always, when I like first started getting into skincare and like I didn't get into skincare until like recently, I think, and it, you
0: can't credit me though. I didn't do anything. Oh
1: no, no, Brian didn't do anything, but he would, he, he, uh, you know, he was with me when I was like looking up skincare products. Cause when when I first met him, I didn't even like pay attention to a lot of skincare products. But then when I did, I started like Googling what the, the right skincare routine is. So I know mm. like which steps to go first. And then it would be like a seven step skincare routine or like a 10 step skincare routine. And then mm. you would have to do them in order. Right. But then it would be like toner, serum, moisturizer, cleanser. And I'm just like, what is the difference between cleanser and toner? Like what is, you know, do we need to do the the two-step cleansing? Um, so then it was just so confusing because I didn't know the difference, you know, and it, it made it seem like you needed all of those things in order to have like the right skincare routine. Right. And I think that's where they like market it to you, where you can, um, you maximize their profits because you have to keep yeah. buying these products.
0: Yeah. I sort of wish we met you earlier because, uh, I feel like Maggie used a lot of your advice. <laughs> that, ever since she learned the skincare routine, she spends like two hours in the rest of the
2: <laughs> Never yes. too late, Maggie. <laughs> I got you. Um, but what you said is exactly correct. That's how every woman or every man who's starting their skincare journey feel like they need they feel like they need xyz and all this 10-step korean skincare routine otherwise you're not going to have a flawless skin like koreans right so Mm -hmm. i think there is a narrative that the beauty industry is trying to create to sell more unnecessary demands and create more unnecessary demands and when i was working for a beauty conglomerate company was more prevalent because like the sales target I think in terms of product development process, it never started from, oh, what does the customer want? Or what are their Mm -hmm. customers? What are the customer's pain point? It was always about, okay, we need to hit 5 million this year. We're at 2 million. So let's kind of like franchise off this bestseller item and create like multiple different categories to meet that 5 million goal. So I think that's where I was a little bit, I guess, saddened by Mm -hmm. as a consumer, right? Because it's not really in your interest to, It's not really in the company's interest to save someone's skin. It's about making more profit, increasing their revenue by launching so many different products. And I think that's why skincare and beauty products nowadays are kind of like a fast fashion industry where it's really not different at all. Like we're seeing so many new launches every single week and people are kind of tired and fatigued to keep up with the new launches on social media too. So, yeah. Yeah. That was a lot.
0: Sorry, No, 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 not at all. I think it's so interesting to hear that from you. And I think you're right. You know, from what I hear so far is that you've always been focused on your customer. You've been focused on your audience. So I really appreciate that. And I think right now it's a good segue to kind of talk about your business. You know, I'm kind of curious, like, I know you mentioned like, you know, taking in investments, you're going to have to grow fast and you're under pressure. Have you taken any, any investments for your company or have you guys bootstrapped since day one?
2: Yes. Luckily we are completely bootstrapped from day one. I am the only shareholder of the company. So that's a really, really big privilege. And I don't take that for granted too. And I want to tell you more about like what's in our future a little bit later, because we're actually launching a venture capital fund because of the experience that I had in the industry. Yeah. I I love that. Um,
1: It's, it's amazing to just see your growth and, Just knowing that, you know, you started off just like as a solo team, as a single person, you know, the only shareholder Um, and seeing just like how big Crave Beauty has gotten goes to show your commitment and dedication. And we know that it takes a lot of
0: hard work. So I'm curious, you know, because we had an opportunity to look through your YouTube channel, still very consistent, by the way. And we have, <laughs> we still look through your TikToks and your Instagram account and they all have a lot of subscribers. Yeah. And, and just, the fact that you're running a business full time without taking any investments, how do you do it? Yeah. How do you manage your time so well? I know. I mean, and like- How do you take care of yourself and your mental health?
1: Yeah. Like Brian and I, we, when we're just like, you know, posting content for Asian Hustle Network, we know, we know the pain. We know the pain of content creation and posting yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. And- we
0: post our own private channels and the Asian Hustle Network one- Asian hustle network one. Yeah. I look myself in the mirror, I'm like, oh my God, there's so much social media.
1: (laughs) And Leah has over a million subscribers on YouTube and hundreds of thousands on Instagram. I wanna know your secret.
2: Um, I think it goes back to like doing an energy audit of where you feel the most alive and where you feel like, oh, time is running by so quickly because you are so into whatever you are doing. For me, that's content creation. For me, that's like posting a content on TikTok, Instagram, and just researching more about skincare or kind of brainstorming the product development pipeline. But then where it kind of drains my energy is the running the company (laughs) aspect of it, which is. Which, is, which sounds pretty terrible, but I think I got a really good hang of how to do it after like four years. <laughs> so for me posting on YouTube, posting on my social, social media, I don't think it's time consuming. I think it adds more, um, I think because it, kind of uses a different side of the brain that i wouldn't use otherwise in running the company and running create beauty and managing people i think that's where i kind of find um, restfulness in in a way but i don't think everyone would feel that way when it comes to content (laughs) creation but everyone's wired differently so that's where my zone of genius is whereas from monday to friday i struggle a lot
0: (laughs) (laughs) doesn't sound like it at all (laughs) i love that how do you how do you you take care of your mental health i mean i know you meant i know you mentioned that you know you think this is fun you know like creating content for you is a place of fun but do you like practice any sort of meditation Do do you set up like boundaries where it's like okay after a certain time i won't respond to any more emails because you know we know content creators get a lot of messages but but as a CEO of your own company, you get a lot of messages internally.
2: So yeah, have
0: I messages all day, like how do you take care of these ongoing thoughts and shutting off that brain and all right, this is that, that, and this, and to keep things separate.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really, really important question for every entrepreneur to nail it <laughs> in terms of time management and taking care of themselves too. So for me, my non-negotiable is sleeping eight hours. And then I don't care if I work from 8 a.m. to like 8 p.m. or even later than that. But I think as long as I have a good amount of sleep and then I meditate first thing in the morning, it does recenter me and it does make me feel like I'm in the control. I'm in the driver's seat of my life. Divide our work into proactive work and reactive work. And I think doing proactive work when you have your peak energy level is very important. And when your cognitive brain function is at its peak, that's when you want to tackle proactive work, Uh, running on, working on strategy or creating content and on the time where you're a little bit physically drained, that's when you can give time to your team members or responding to emails where it's not so much about the work that I need them to do, but it's the other way around. So I think by kind of controlling your workflow in that order has given me some more free time and more control in my time. And I think in terms of the mental health, it's important for you to always have an infrastructure of support system. So whether that you... So whether that's from your coaching or getting therapy, I think these are all important, especially as an entrepreneur, content creator, freelance who's navigating things alone, it can be very, very lonely. So they're all. it's always great to have a third party, third perspective, um, kind of solving the problems together and just being there for you as a support system. I love that.
1: Yeah, such
2: helpful advice and love
1: that you brought up therapy because you know there is obviously a really big stigma with therapy especially in the Asian community um and coaching and and yeah yeah and coaching and I love that you brought it up because we do need to normalize and destigmatize it um but I think my favorite one of all is the eight hours of sleep one I think Leah is a true skincare enthusiast because just like besides skincare (laughs) products Eight hours sleep is like, should be the number one thing, yeah, but nobody very actually
2: very 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 ever
0: does like it. Eight hours of sleep. Though. Is it like four hours now and four hours later or like continuous eight hours?
2: <laughs> continuous <laughs> 89 hours.
1: <laughs> okay. I would I mean, feel so tired that, with four hours uh, and then four hours. they don't
0: sleep throughout the day, but sleep like naps, like every three hours and they sleep for an hour and they stay up for like 24 what? hours. Yeah. What? It's, it's so crazy. They call it intermittent, intermittent napping. It's a way for them to continue working around the clock. I'm just like, you guys are crazy.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm so curious if that actually has a benefit because how there's like intermittent intermittent fasting has a lot of a, a lot of health benefits. I wonder if that's the same with sleeping schedule. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let us know what you what, what you find. I'm kind of curious too, because I will be talking to them at like six AM and then again at one a.m. I'm like, why are you still waiting? Like, oh yeah, I'm intermittent napping. So I just woke up. <laughs>
1: that's hilarious yeah so i did notice you know on your social media you do have you know one platform just as your normal platform for k beauty and then you do have one for your specific audience uh, in korea or you know to korean specifically i want to know like what mean you decide to have you know two different platforms or just you know reach out to those two different audiences um and you know what has been like your growth strategy for those two different audiences
2: Yeah, we do. When it comes to our Crave beauty social media, we do have two different channels, one for Korea, one for global. So I think it's important for any companies who is trying to localize their marketing to have a separate dedicated channel that speaks a familiar language instead of creating one universal global channel to hit all the audience. So we do have two separate teams, one in Korea and another in the States. And that's why we've been able to run two different accounts and have two two different marketing strategy. Uh That's That's amazing. Yeah.
0: So I want to take you one giant step back and I want to hear more about what your parents have thought about you during this entire process. Are they super proud of you? Are they supporting you? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so my parents are pretty liberal and they're very progressive, so they never really doubted my abilities to make the make my own decisions. So whenever oh when I was quitting my job, they actually supported that. They wanted me to try whatever I thought that was right for my future and my path. So they were very supportive. So I think now that the company has taken off and also my YouTube channel is relatively thriving, I guess, (laughs) um, they are very proud to say to other like Korean Ajumas and ajushis (laughs) and brag about like what I have achieved to them. But other than, but before that, I think they might've felt like a little bit inferior to other Korean Ajumas or Korean friends that they do have Asian because, yeah. yeah, other Asian, um, yeah, Asian parents can think less of when it comes to quitting a very prestigious job and you don't have a you don't technically have a job, but you do. If you say that you're a content creator, I don't think they would understand easily.
0: Mm-mm, not at all. They must be really, really proud of you, and you know, I can totally relate to that too. Like, my parents yeah i I quit twice in my 20s i'm in my 30s uh, as well Mm. first time i quit my parents freaked out and they stopped talking to me for a year you know and the second time i quit because i was semi-successful the first time they're like you got it son you can do it and they became super supportive and the same same thing it's like you know how you mentioned like Ajimas and talking to like everyone else like our asian parents love bragging about us and like hey like my kid's doing so well yeah Uh, just getting over the first hump initially and having them believe in your ability, it's like a lot difficult for most people. Yeah. It's like, mom, I can do it. You have to believe in me. But you know how Asian parents are at the beginning, it's like, they don't believe in you until they believe in you.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. I can definitely relate to like both of your stories because I remember like my parents would always say like, Oh, keep your nine to five, don't ever let it go because you have such great benefits. And they're always like, your cousin got a new job. Is it more, you know, is it is a higher um, salary than yours? And, and always comparing. That.
0: It's like, how come you didn't quit earlier?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. And then when I quit, Brian actually posted it on Facebook because yeah. I wasn't planning to tell my parents about it yet. When I had quit my job, I forgot mm-hmm. my parents had Facebook. And so they saw the post. It's the funniest thing. That was my dad. <laughs> I eat dinner with my parents one day and they're like, oh, so we know that you quit your job. I'm like, what? how did you know that? Uh, but it like clicked to me. But, you know, I think like as we grow up at, you know, at our age, they start to understand that, you know, maybe there are things that they don't understand. You know, they come from a different generation. There's like so many different ways to make money now. Um, And, you know, they just want the best for us and to like see us happy. And I'm sure your parents are very proud of you, too, Leah. And like yeah. they're seeing that you're doing something so fulfilling to you and that you're passionate about, Um, you know, they're probably very, very proud of you.
0: Yeah. And. Shout out to you and, uh, <laughs> crazy looking at you now and looking at how successful you are and forgetting that, you know, it took you a really long time to get here and yeah. no, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, I think they got away. They were okay because I didn't need financial help, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a, I think that's the line where if you are at a point where you need to financially reach out to your parents, that's when they would be, I guess. <laughs> they would think a little bit differently. Oh yeah. Yeah. About your decision.
0: Definitely. I know it's earlier, you mentioned that your loans are super low, right. And your, your first two years that you started in this, you made absolutely no income, like what was going through your mind and how did you keep yourself going? You know, what was your invo- internal voice telling you?
2: Yeah, I didn't want to meet anyone just because I wasn't really confident in the living situation that I was at. And of course, like back then I was living in Korea too. So a lot of my friends were still working for a very big name companies like Samsung and all these prestigious, prestigious names. So I definitely didn't feel like I was confident enough to put myself out there in social situations. So I kind of created my own little cave and I completely uh, switched my schedule to be a night owl and then not meet anyone in the daytime because I'll be sleeping. And then I'll create content in the nighttime edit and do that all over again. So my health, my physical health was almost tearing apart because I would live a very unhealthy lifestyle. I would eat at midnight and that just became my schedule. So I think in my head, I, I wasn't okay for sure. I was probably crying for help, but I didn't know who to ask help for because it's a decision that I made and it's a responsibility that I should be taking because no one, no one in my life has asked me to quit my corporate job and do YouTube full time. So I wanted to be proud to myself, but because I, because I wasn't, I think for the first two years, it was, it was a little bit difficult to build any social uh, relationships or do anything outside of just YouTube, to be honest. Wow.
0: That
2: Um, is a, That's a very powerful like I would have never known Um,
1: and I'm sure you don't, you know, tell the world about, you know, those 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 times that you were, you know, switching your schedule to be a night owl. And it's definitely shows that you've grown a lot now that you're looking back and seeing like, wow, that was actually a really unhealthy lifestyle. You know, yeah,
0: that's so relatable. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me myself at least because out of high school, I wasn't the best student. So when I got to college, I literally switched my schedule similarly to prove Mm. that I can get straight A's, Mm. you know, so it's like, it's just proving to yourself that you can do it. And that one mindset to move forward and continue doing that. It's like how you do one thing is how you do everything. You can totally see how you've been translating that worth ethic to everything, Uh, of course, not the healthiest. The healthiest approach, I would say, <laughs> yeah, sure. but but I definitely appreciate that. Burning all bridges, this is my only option mindset, and that's how you became so, so successful.
2: Yeah, totally,
1: definitely relate to that. So, Leah, how do you see like the future of skincare? Because I feel like it's always ever evolving all the time, and you know, you running a skincare brand and company, um, I'm sure you have to always stay on top of like, what is happening in the skincare industry and skincare world. But I want to know, like, what do you see as the future of skincare? Um, And like, what do you hope for Crave to become?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think, to be honest, from the product perspective, I don't think there needs to be a really cool innovation or big breakthrough innovation, to be honest, because our skin as an organ hasn't changed for a thousand years, right? So there isn't really a need for a new technology to come into, I don't know, help with your natural skin's functionality. So from the product perspective, I would like to see more evergreen timeless products, because I think nowadays with the new fast fashion, like, um, skincare industry, we see a lot of new products, but then they wouldn't really last. But then I think it will be really, really cool to create a brand that, that sustainably lasts for decades. I think nowadays in the beauty industry where acquisition is so hot, there's a lot of money to invest into new beauty ventures. I think people are trying to grow their company really quickly in a short period of time. I think the beauty investment typical hold period is around 3.4 years or less than five years for sure. So that kind of shows to tell that a lot of the beauty companies are not here to last. They are trying to maximize the growth to get sold at a very high price to the next buyer. And if you're, if you go to private equity fund, they will try to maximize the product portfolio and then create so many unnecessary demands. And then they would sell it to, Beauty conglomerate. I think that's the conventional acquisition track that we see nowadays in the beauty industry. And that's something that I want to change because if you look at brands like Nike or Patagonia, these are the brands that have been founded in the 1960s, 70s, and they're still relevant timelessly. And I think I want to create a brand that lives really at, I want to create a brand that sustainably. I want to create a brand that grows very intentionally and sustainably. And that is there for the customers for decades and decades. Um, That leads to like another announcement where we are trying to launch a new venture capital fund. And I wasn't really interested in, you know, I wasn't really interested in being an investor or anything like that because we have never gotten an investment at all. But I think that's why I thought it was really, really important for us who are here to protect the company's vision, protect the founder's vision and be there for the founders because we see so many, you know, So many D2C brands that compromise their value uh, as soon as they get a really big check size and then you're reporting to your shareholders, not your stakeholders. So I really thought that there is an untapped opportunity for us to become a shareholder to always prioritize um, your stakeholders structurally. So that's why we launched a new fund and it's in the works so Stay tuned for that. <laughs>
0: Congratulations! That's a huge announcement, and that's—I love the vision behind the fun. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people out there that start funds are just for fun, <laughs> but I feel yeah. like you're very intentional in what you want to do with this. And I really—I'm for it. And I absolutely support that. So shout out to you and continue impressing us for us mm-hmm. entire podcast. You know, we thought, we thought you couldn't impress anymore, but now I was like, whoa, just level up. They're in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you. No, yeah. oh, I'm super flattered. Absolutely agree.
1: Congratulations on all of that big news. And like Brian said, I can definitely sense that, you know, the inspiration and the reason that you're doing this is all coming from really good intentions. Um, So, especially because, you know, you, you've said to us that you never even had an investor for Crave. So it definitely shows a lot. So Leah, we have one last question for you. And that is if you could give an advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that one advice be?
2: Um, I think I can tie back to my personal experience where I struggle the most and I still struggle is the imposter syndrome. It's like you're never good enough to be a CEO. And I think it's harder for a lot of visionary founders too because founders are kind of like a de facto CEO nowadays. When they found a company, they're naturally a CEO too. So I think the transition phase from a founder to a CEO is is where I struggled the most because no one really taught me how to run a company. I know how to found a company, I know how to build a company, but no one really taught me to manage a team or like do an organizational design and create a company culture and something like that. So I think that's where I got that was probably the most turbulent time um, until this date, uh, ever since I started the company. So I think imposter syndrome was very, very huge to me. And that limiting belief can also hinder your version of success. So knowing that every entrepreneur out there that you may look up to, that you saw in the media, They also don't have their shits together, and knowing that gave me a lot of comfort because you're mostly you're most likely doing this for the first time, running the company, founding the company, and you're if you if you keep compare yourself to those who have run the business for years and years enough to be on the cover of the Forbes, like you're shooting yourself in the foot, right? You're setting yourself up for failure. So I think it's really important for us to have confidence in the version that we're bringing to the company and knowing that we are the expert when it comes to running the company that we founded is so 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 important but i think it's it's very very hard to believe that because the society and the media tells you otherwise there's a better version of a leader there's like this ceo that ceo and i think you The biggest lesson for me um, was to grow confidence and overcome my imposter syndrome and be comfortable in the version that I bring in terms of success.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners, I want you guys to re-listen to that part again because it's so deep, you know? I think you bring up a really good point because at the end of the day, we're all humans. And the more you meet your idols, the more you you have the, the opportunity to talk to them, you realize that we're all kind of lost doesn't matter how much money you have this person might have billions and you talk to them you're still lost you know yeah and just because you created one successful company or two doesn't mean their third one to be successful because every company is different and every opportunity requires different challenges that you're you don't necessarily have the skill set so I, I do agree don't compare yourself to other take life at your own journey and more importantly have fun you know it's your life have fun it's your product yeah. it's your passion you know <laughs>
1: yeah I absolutely that. I agree that was so powerful yeah i think like obviously everyone tries to make themselves sound like you know everything is going well for them dandy and rosy and no one's mm-hmm. going to admit to the failures that they have right and so i think we have this like false conception that you know all the ceos and entrepreneurs out there are successful because they know what they're doing but yeah. a lot of us are learning as we go and we have to yeah. recognize that and remember that
2: Yeah. And then like to add on to that, I I remember like a venture capitalist called Vinod Khosla, who is another very legendary person that I look up to in the VC space. He emphasized that knowing whose advice to take and on what topic is the single most important decision an entrepreneur can make and He also said that Silicon Valley is full of consultants, venture capitalists who never have run a company. So you should be proud of where you are as a CEO, as a founder, and you have to believe that you are an expert in that category. Otherwise, like everyone else, like investors and consultants, they would have founded your company, but they didn't. So I think it's important to also remind ourselves that we are the true expert and we need to also filter whose advice we take And yeah, I think that's another key wisdom that I learned from that person.
0: Absolutely correct.
2: Super valuable information. (laughs) So Leah, how can our listeners find out more about you
1: and Crave Beauty online?
2: yeah so crave beauty can be found on our website at cravebeauty.com and then on socials it's all crave beauty and leah you youtube channel you can just type in liah on youtube and i'm on instagram and tiktok with the same handle as well
1: awesome. awesome it was so awesome having you on our show today leah thank you so much for sharing your story
0: with us yeah thank you so, much thank for you. so inspirational
2: <laughs> no you guys are thanks for doing the work that you guys are doing
0: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you a lot. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show.
1: We would like to get to the top ten on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned.
0: Thank you guys so much.
1: This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document, and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits.
0: Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want AHN to continue being meaningful and get back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron.